Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Valentine's Day is coming up, but if you are a fan of the NBC comedy Parks and Recreation starring Amy Poehler, this time of year might hold a different meaning for you. February 14th, Valentine's Day, is about romance. But February 13th, Galentine's Day, is about celebrating lady friends. It's wonderful and it should be a national holiday. In honor of Galentine's Day, we're talking about the under-examined realm of female friendships and the science behind them. Later in the show, if you've ridden an MBTA bus lately, you might have noticed a big red decal on the side honoring Rosa Parks and her contributions to the civil rights movement. We talked to the local woman behind the idea for the tribute, as well as some of the other people who helped her pass it into Massachusetts law. But first, joining me from the studios of NPR New York, Jacqueline Morose, journalist and science writer for the New York Times. She's the author of Girl Talk, What Science Can Tell Us About Female Friendship. Hello, Jacqueline. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you. And from Universal Noise Storage in Newburyport, Massachusetts, Tricia Craig, UTR listener and professional flutist. Hello, Tricia. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. She's also best friends with our next guest, Grace Moschetto, who joins us over the phone. She is the owner of Grace Marie Beauty and BFFs with Tricia. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me, Callie. <laughs> and a very special guest joining us all the way from the studios of KCSN in Northridge, California, Marcy DeVoe, a professor at California State University, Northridge, and my best friend. Welcome all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Jackie Morose, you've written quite a powerful book and one that uh, all of us in this conversation know to be true, <laughs> that there is a science to, to female friendship. But I wanted to start uh, by asking you, what's the number one thing uh, that science proves about female friendship? Well, one of the most interesting things that I discovered is that um, women's friendships are more fragile because they're more intense. And women have higher expectations of their friends, so it's much easier for them to feel disappointed if they feel like their trust has been uh, betrayed somehow. And one of the reasons that you were inspired to write the book, in fact, is because you had what you called a friendship breakup, and you wanted to figure out why. Talk about that, if you That's would. That's right. I have lots of great Incredible friends who um, are very supportive, but I would sometimes feel like my friends would act in these sort of strange and mysterious ways, and I felt kind of undermined by them, and I couldn't really figure out what was going on, and um, I have a science journalism background, and one day I thought, I wonder if there's a scientific explanation to the way women act with their friends, and so that's what I started looking into, and that's how I came up with the book. 
And one more thing before I move to the other guests, and that is there is a big difference between women's friendships and men's friendships, hence why you are investigating That's this right. in your book. Um, so women tend to um, go in traditional societies and live with their husbands' families, and it was much harder for them to get along with strangers. And so they began forming smaller, more intimate social networks that were more secure. Meanwhile, the men were living with their family members, and they already had a high degree of trust with them because they shared their genes. And so because of that, men today tend to form larger, less intimate social networks, and women have these smaller, much more intimate, um, secure social networks where they reveal very intimate, secret relation, uh, information to their friends. All right. Well, let's move over to some of the friends because um, uh, what they are experiencing seems to come from the pages of your book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, Tricia, um, tell me about how you became okay. friends with Grace. Well, uh, Grace is two years younger than I am. And when we were kids, her brother was in my class and we were in band together. And one day um, in seventh grade, I was calling Tony and he wasn't there. And this was back in the days where you had one phone in your house. And uh, Grace answered the phone and we just started talking. And, and we've honestly been friends ever since that moment. <laughs> it's a kind of an uh, unusual way to meet. <laughs> so what do you think has added to or supported your your friendship, because you've been friends for yes. 41 years. <laughs> 41 years. Doesn't seem possible. Uh, I did the math the other day when I was talking with your producer, and I almost I almost fell on the floor when I came up with the number 41 years, but that's how long it's been since, since we met. And, you know, we go through all kinds of cycles together. Um, you know, in our 20s, we didn't see each other so much, but every time we'd get back together, it would just be a, a really strong bond and connection and... Um, We've dragged each other through some significant life challenges and business choices, and um, I, I don't know what I would. I don't know what I would do without Grace. I really just don't know how how I would get through a lot of stuff without her. Grace, oh my goodness, what do you uh, say? I actually have never given the science aspect of this whole relationship any thought whatsoever because there was just an instant liking, and we just connected. Um, so, yeah, I just, I, like I said, I've just really never given it much thought. And I, like Trisha, could, I don't know what I would do without her. I, I just think of it as sisterly. Can I jump in here? <laughs> yes, sure. I was about to come right to you. As a matter of fact, this is Jackie Moreau, science writer for the New York Times and author of Girl Talk, What Science Can Tell Us About Female Friendship. Go ahead. So what I wanted to say is that um, Scientists believe that one reason why we're attracted to other people who become our friends is because they believe we may actually share some of the same genes with them. And I thought that was so interesting because you might have the same taste in music or the same interests. And I even have friends who kind of look alike. And people keep asking if they're sisters. Now I think, well, they probably share some of the same genes. So, Marcy. Yes. Uh, based on what Jackie just said, would you agree with that? Because I think we're very different. I think we're very different, and <laughs> I would be shocked and surprised if there were any link to our genes, um, even though we've been best friends for 37 years. Can you believe it's been 37 years? Um, mm -mm. We are vastly different. And tell everybody how we met. 
I'll let you tell the story because you always embellish it, of course. But go ahead. <laughs> well, we actually knew, knew each other at WGBH in Boston. I was working there, as was Callie. And I would see her in the hallway, and I would acknowledge her. I knew who she was. But we didn't actually become friends until a year later. This was 1980-something. About a year later, we both found ourselves on the same airplane um, headed to a conference. And uh, I walked onto the plane, and I acknowledged her. She was an on-air reporter at WGBH at the time, and I was just a lowly assistant, so... Um, I see the embellishment. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I acknowledged her and went, you know, to the back of the plane to my seat. And um, at the uh, after we landed, uh, we got off the flight. And we were waiting for our luggage, and Callie said to me, "Would you like to share a cab?" And I said, uh, "Okay, yes, Miss Crossley, I'd like to share a cab." <laughs> and so I got into the cab, and we were best friends from that moment on. <laughs> Now, if you believe all of that, I have a bridge for you, but whatever. <laughs> but, Jackie, I have to say, we are so totally different. We have a lot of common values, but but in terms of, you know, both of our affects and many other things, it's it's we're just very different. Well, not How everybody, does that play out not in everybody shares teams with their friends. But uh, one thing I wanted to add is that what I discovered is that when we were with our friends— our brains release oxytocin, which calms our, us down, and increases the serotonin, which is a natural mood stabilizer. And so it calms like our whole ne- central nervous system. And if you think about the time you spend with your friends, how good that feels, those are the reasons why. I am very interested, uh, Tricia and Grace, because Marcy and I fight all the time. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> and, and, mm-hmm. and, and reading about you two, you've never fought, which I find very interesting. <laughs> I'll get back to us in a minute, but you tell me, how is that possible? But just like you guys, we're very different in lots and lots of ways, but we have the same sort of spiritual center or 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 um, emotional connections and similar some similar interests. And um, for us, the intensity is, um, we always joke that we can't both crash at the same time because uh, the world would end. One of us will call. It's not unusual to get a call from the other, and we're just in a fit of panic and despair, and the world is going to end. And the other one... We talk each other down, and by the end of the conversation, I do I, that oxy the 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 chemical response you're just discussing. <laughs> I think it really happens. Like no one can get me back on the the calm, straight path like Grace. She she helps ground me, and I think I think I do the same for her. <laughs> Indeed, Grace, she, is that true? she does. Yes, what, whatever Trisha said. Yes, I'm nodding my head. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on this one, I have to agree because um, so many times I either can uh, send an email to Marcy or just call her and pick up the phone without hello and say, reality check. Really? Is this happening? (laughs) And she knows exactly what I'm talking about. And it's just that kind of uh, synchronicity. Um, And I think those oxytocins that you talk about, uh, Jackie Morose, are absolutely there. One of the pieces that I wanted to pick up on that I think is very interesting is uh, from your book is that um, when you, not only the oxytocins, if you, as you have mentioned, but women in long-term female friendships have better health outcomes overall, which I did not know until reading your book. Uh, Jackie, 
Morose, tell us about that, and how does that happen? Yeah, well, um, this is proven. There's women who have good friends, have an improved immune system. It lowers our blood pressure. We have less depression. Uh, we heal faster and better from illnesses, and we tend to live longer. So there are all kinds of studies. There's a famous uh, Harvard nurse's um, health study that went on for many years looking at women, um, even women with cancer tend to heal faster. I've talked to a couple of women in my book about that. Um, being surrounded by friends is incredible healing qualities. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are journalist and author Jackie Morose, best friends and Under the Radar listeners Trisha Craig and Grace Moschetto, and my best friend Marcy DeVoe. We're discussing the science behind female friendships in honor of Valentine's Day. So, Marcy DeVoe, let me start uh, asking you this question, as I will ask of uh, Trisha and Grace, and that is, what's the best thing? thing about having a best friend relationship um, that you know, that you can describe as enriched your life? Well, you know, my life has changed dramatically. I mean, I left Massachusetts where my family lives up in Haverhill and moved cross country by myself um, to take a job on the Bay Area. And Without the connection of my best friend, um, willing to wake up, uh, you know, it's a three-hour time change, willing to wake up in the middle of the night to take my call to say, oh, my God, what have I done? You know, I I now live in this town. I don't know anybody. I've taken a job where I don't know anybody. Um, That having the ability to know that, that Callie's on the other end of the line, no matter what time of day or night, um, is... I think the thing that got me through that, you know, that move. Um, And then I've moved a number of other times, and each time um, there's something really quite um, relaxing and um, important about knowing uh, that your best friend is there and you can call, and even if it's a, you know, a groggy phone call, um, uh, that person (laughs) is there and can, you know, peel you off off the roof sometimes. Exactly. That's that's exactly how I feel. And to to be able also um, to sort of start in the middle of the conversation, you don't have to really do much backup. Um, you can sort of just go forward from wherever you are. Um, Grace, how do you answer that question? What's the best thing about your relationship? With Trisha, it's just so it's soothing and natural. It's just not something that I even really think about. Um, but I know that I would if I need her, she's there, and and she knows that if she needs me, I'm I'm here. I think the other thing with us is that we grew up um, by the beach. Um, I actually grew up on the beach, and um, and we've actually both lived at the same beach house, not at the same time, um, and uh, that environment has has I feel like it's lent itself to a lot of our experiences as friends. But um, all I can say is I, I feel like it's just it's soothing. Trisha is a very calming person for me. <laughs> Trisha, you know, there are so many people who can't imagine uh, having long-term friendship with anybody, certainly not as long as you two have. What do you say to them when you say, when you say this not only has it endured, but it enriches my well, life? Well, it, 
it crept up on me, like I said the other day, uh, when I did the math, I just couldn't believe how long it's been. The beautiful and kind of profound thing about having a, a dear friend like this is it is sisterly, but it's also by choice. You know, she, Grace and I choose to be this close and connected to each other. It's like having a family member that just chose to be in your in your circle. And, you know, I think for people who might struggle with friendships, you guys said that you, you fight a lot or what have you. I think the, the point is to just sort of be true to each other and have have your heart open. So like Grace and I can kind of talk about anything, maybe something that I wouldn't talk about with anyone else. And I laugh because she said I'm soothing to her, but she's probably the only person in the world that would say that about me. I'm, I'm kind of over the top sometimes. But um, I, I think it's key to just have an honest, open heart with no walls around it when you're talking with, you know, your women friends. It's it's a really important relationship and it can really be lifelong and and helpful lifelong, really, really something to rely on together. It's rare. I think it's rare to have such a close friendship sometimes. I mean, but it's a it's a beautiful thing. And I mean, I just love Grace so much. I just don't know what I would do without her in my world, <laughs> honestly. Jackie Morose, I want to bring something else up that I didn't see much of in your book, Girl Talk, What Science Can Tell Us About Female Friendship. And that is sometimes Marcy and I can just look at each other across the room and scream <laughs> with laughter. No words spoken. I mean, we have the best laugh. As much as we can fight about stuff, we just <laughs> laugh and laugh and laugh about stuff. Some of that has history. Uh, some of it is, you know, just in the moment. But I didn't see a lot of that explanation, uh, exploration around the humor that's, I think, a big part of these relationships. Mm, that's true. Um, well, one thing I would say is that women are, are mind readers. That's what researchers say about them, uh, about us. And uh, so we can look at our friend's face and just kind of read exactly what they're thinking, right? And mm -hmm. uh, men are not able to do that, which is why scientists believe women cry more than men, because it was the only way for to signal to men that we were sort of in distress or unhappy. But I think that's true. I mean, I have friends from college. We just laugh and laugh and laugh. I, I don't do that with all of my friends. And I'll also say that I have a very good friend from grade school, which is we've been friends for over 40 years as well. So um, There and, you go. Yeah. And another thing um, that researchers have found is that women um, kind of blur the lines between friends and family. And a lot to a lot of women, their friends just feel just like family to them. Uh, Grace, I think you said it that, you know, you choose to be friends. So it's different from family in that way, because uh, there's a choice there and you're working toward keeping that relationship together because you want to. In, in a way that you don't, with perhaps with your family, <laughs> all the time. Um, here's something I want to explore a little bit more. Grace, you say you have a lot more male friends. And Marcy, I know that you have talked a lot about men don't have buddies. So I'm curious about how two women who have really good, close female friendships and value it um, sort of view male relationships. I'll start with you, Marcy. Yeah, so it's it's been um, interesting to me um, to see not only the men in my family, but the many um, men that are around me, either at work or in my social circles, who don't have buddies, who don't have men that they go out and, you know, go to lunch or whatever it is. Um, they have female relationships, either wives or girlfriends, that they spend their leisure time with. 
but not buddies. And I, I'm puzzled by that. I, I wonder if that's generational, um, because younger men tend to have um, buddies or, or men that they do things with. But it, it has been something that's been puzzling um, for me for a while. And Grace, how is it that you have a lot more male friends? Usually I find that uh, women are women's women or men's women, but not both well, at the same time. I think I'm, I'm an anti-drama kind of person. And I, I so I think I've leaned toward men um, and relied upon men to not provide the type of drama that women do. I, I feel like maybe women are... Uh, competitive with each other, um, sometimes, sometimes spoken, sometimes unspoken, but it is definitely something that I feel. Um, and so I just, I feel like, uh, and this is mostly growing up, I've, I've had more male friends. So it's interesting because, um, Jackie, you spend uh, quite a bit of time talking about that competitive streak that other women have expressed about other women, and it's being a detriment sometimes in uh, developing relationships, but but yet it hasn't stopped most women from developing good female relationships. They still consider it to be valuable. I have to say that um, generally I don't feel competitive in that way because I celebrate my friends' other skills and talents because they're usually so different from me, and I'm impressed by that. And I find it something that just that helps me along the way. So I don't I don't feel that as much, but I get it, and I've seen it, and I've experienced. It. I think we all have. So Jackie uh, Morose, what about that uh, overcoming the competitiveness to get to the friendship? Yeah, I mean, I I talked to some women in my book who feel the same way. They just get along better with men. They don't feel that competition. They don't feel like that bitchy behavior that you can get sometimes. And I think with women, you feel this, it's indirect aggression. So men and women both experience this aggression. But because women are socialized as you know, young girls not to act very aggressive, outward, outwardly aggressive, it becomes this indirect aggression, which is this sort of bitchy behavior. And that can be difficult to deal with, for sure. Um, and I've experienced it. I think a lot of women have. Um, and the other hmm. difference that hmm. I found between men and women is that men tend to be better at resolving conflict than women do. And they found that in the workplace as well. Um, and so that could be another reason why sometimes people gravitate toward men. But let me challenge you on that and ask the question, is that because their friendships compared to ours are not as deep? So, I mean, it's easier for me to resolve a conflict if I'm not going so deep. If you um, can't hurt me as deeply, you know, I, right? That's true. <laughs> I, I agree with that, definitely. I mean, men have tend to have these, like, bigger, less intimate social networks. Um, in fact, one man who was interviewed about his best friend, it turned out the guy had died years ago. And he oh, my God. And he still <laughs> considered him his best friend. Okay, Jackie, that's just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Let me do a round robin from each of you, uh, Tricia, Grace, and Marcy, and ask, what do you think are the common denominators denominators that um, contribute to a, a strong and enduring female friendship? Go ahead, Tricia. <laughs> okay, so I think um, trust is probably a common denominator in great women's friendships. I think a sense of humor, at least for, for me, you know, everybody's different, but have, finding somebody that you can relate to, relate with, and, you know, laugh across the room. Grace and I have all these little 
words that make send us into fits of laughter. But having, you know, something in common and having a similar sense of your spiritual side, whatever that may be. And it's it's the connection. It's I guess the common denominator for women friendships is a, is a deep connection on some level for some reason. All right. Um, Grace, you ready? Yes. And it, it's uh, <laughs> all of those things that, that, tr- that Tricia said. And it also for me, it, it, it's having hope without expectations of the other person. Mm, yeah. Marcy. I, for me, it's it's absolutely shared values. It's it's we can be as different um, on many levels, but the values, you know, the the concrete common values have to be in in alignment. And with shared values, I think comes uh, trust. And for me, the the ability to have longevity uh, in in a friendship or in in a relationship, any relationship. Mm-hmm. All right, so. Jackie Morose, how do you follow that then from what you know from science, as in your book, Girl Talk, What Science Can Tell Us About Female Friendships? Well, the uh, qualities that you need to have in a good friendship, and and if you don't have these, that can break up a friendship, is one is self-disclosure, and that has to go both ways. So if you feel like you're telling your friend your deepest, darkest secrets and she just says, "Uh uh-huh, and doesn't say anything (laughs) back, that can be a problem. Um, It has to feel enjoyable. It's not just calling each other to vent, but it has to feel fun to be together. Um, You have to feel supportive or supported by your friend. And there should be some time to interact if it let it kind of drift apart. That can be a problem, even talking over the phone. And lastly, it should feel like a positive force in your life and not something that brings you down. All right. And is it something you need to work at or should it just naturally evolve? I think you need to work at it. Um, Definitely. And, um, you know, there are qualities that you can find in a good friend. These are you know, somebody who has good communication skills, who's emotionally supportive, who has shows empathy, and is also good at conflict management. And um, one thing I would add to that issue about conflict is that even though we feel like we can tell our friends anything, it's often very difficult to talk to your friend about your friendship hmm. with them. Well, I began this conversation saying you started this book because you wanted to deconstruct a friend relationship that fell apart. Did you get your answer from doing the work on this book? I did. I did. Yes. And we are friends okay. again. And um, sometimes it's important to set limits with a friend if you feel like things aren't working the way you want them to. Um and to check in with them and, and talk about what what went wrong, what you can do to fix it. Well, I have to say for myself, I, I yesterday got my first Galentine's invite. <laughs> so there's a real celebration of female friendships that if, through this kind of pop culture event, which I uh, personally appreciate. It's a time to talk about these things. Um, and I look forward and seeing that as you get older, you get more comfortable and you're really really pare down and become more honest, I think, in uh, even more honest with your closest relationships. And I find that to be quite satisfying. And so I do my round robin again, and uh, I'll start with Tricia uh, saying, is that how you view the looking forward in your relationship with Grace? Oh, yeah. It ages with us, our friendship. You know, we were 
10 and 12 when we met. That's an awful lot different than when we are this age that we are now in our, you know, over 50. And uh, the relationship is, it's the one thing that has is is always it's always there it doesn't matter what happens with other partners or what have you we, we can always come back to each other and um being at our age and knowing each other for this long it just really enhances our life and i think it is something that we know that we can rely on and and into the future long term it really does uh, a good friendship ages really well as 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 you mature and live life together grace Yes, agreed. Um, I just feel like it's a natural constant with with Trisha. I, I, you know, as I said earlier, I I don't seem to give it any thought. It's just there, and we just, um, you know, it's funny. We 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 started off our our friendship by talking on the phone, and we had we had that interaction without the distractions of today, um, mm-hmm. and that that I think. Um, may just be a universal timing thing, but I, I feel very blessed. Trisha, I feel like Trisha and I are very blessed that we had the opportunity uh, in, in the universe at that time to, to make that connection. I'm glad she called for my brother. <laughs> <laughs> Marcy DeVoe? <laughs> well, our friendship certainly has evolved, I mean, over the years. <clears throat> 37 years is a long time. And, you know, when we started our friendship, we lived in the same city. You know, we were both in Cambridge and we saw each other, you know, regularly, frequently. And then I moved. And so it became a telephone friendship, you know, across the country. And we used to talk every day. And then as our lives got really busy, sometimes we don't talk for months at a time. Um, But. So, so there's an, an evolutionary process there on, on in the friendship in the relationship, but as as you said, um, Callie earlier, you know we can pick up in the middle of a sentence, and we may not have seen or talked to each other for six months, but we'll pick up in the middle of the sentence as if we you know just took a pause to get a drink of water, and I think that's the power of um, a long term friendship where you know each other so very well that it doesn't mean you have to connect um, regularly. It's just there. I think that's true. And I also should point out that we travel a lot together. And so we have long periods of time, concentrated time, where there are those, you know, sort of evolving conversations that wind over several days and through the night and over much wine, <laughs> and um, so you, it's it's a kind of deepening in those uh, circumstances that uh, I know uh, add a lot to our ability to maintain and you know refurbish um, our friendship. Yeah, and I think it's if I could say I think it's interesting that that Trisha and Grace were talking about how their friendship is soothing. Um, my friendship with Callie is energizing. Uh, I don't call her when I want to calm down. I call her when I need to be energized. So that uh, I get energy from <laughs> a lot of energy from from this friendship. The other thing is that uh, one of you said uh, you were too much for the other. I'm the too much in our relationship. Marcy's also always saying to me, "Really, really." <laughs> so calm down, will you? Just calm down. I am all in. When I'm in, I'm all in. So you know, uh, I need the other the other balancing. Um, I think what we can all agree 
Jackie Morose is that uh, female friendships are something special. And what would you leave us with uh, as uh, both from a scientific viewpoint and also a personal one about female friendships? Um, well, one thing I wanted to add is that um, because of evolution, women are really able to connect very deeply in their friendships. And evolution also made us rely on our friends as if a crucial biological need is being fulfilled. And I think we all can kind of relate to that. And I would just say I love my friends and I feel very lucky to have them. Oh, that's great. Last word from you, Tricia? I just think that it's really a valuable addition to to a woman's life to have a dear friend that you can just relate to for for everything good bad upbeat downbeat whatever it is <laughs> it's a uh, it, it's a um, quite a quite a blessing quite a quite a positive uh force in in your world grace what Trisha just said. <laughs> I love you. I just find myself, she thinks that I'm thinking it, she says it, you know. Um, but I, I just feel just uh, so, so blessed and thankful and, uh, and appreciative of this life that I have and that Trisha is, has been in it and, and we're on the, we're in this life together for as long as the universe allows us to be. Marcy. I, I would say if for someone listening out there who doesn't have a best friend, it's never too late. You you want to find someone that, that gets you, that understands you. So, you know, I feel bad for people who don't have that kind of relationship. And so you can create it. Just create, you know, a friendship with someone. Um, doesn't have to be 38 years long. It could be just a few years. But if you have that connection with another woman, a soul sister, um, it will enhance your life greatly. Well, I want to thank all of you for helping me celebrate Galentine's Day, <laughs> which I now embrace. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you. Jackie Morose is science writer for the New York Times and author of Girl Talk, What Science Can Tell Us About Female Friendship, which is available for purchase in stores and online. Trisha Craig is a professional flutist and best friend of fellow guest Grace Moschetto, owner of Grace Marie Beauty, and Marcy DeVoe, professor at California State University Northridge and my best friend. Coming up, over 60 years ago, Rosa Parks demonstrated when one person takes action, everything can change. Inspired by Rosa Parks' resolve, a Braintree woman worked to pay homage to the civil rights icon with her own initiative, a new Massachusetts law requiring all MBTA buses to carry a decal honoring Parks. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. On December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks, a 42-year-old seamstress, was arrested after refusing to give up her seat to a white passenger on a Montgomery, Alabama bus. She was sitting in the so-called colored section of the bus, but according to the law, was required to give up her seat if the white section was full. Her singular act of resistance inspired the Montgomery bus boycott, considered the catalyst for the civil rights movement, and ushered in Martin Luther King Jr.'s debut 
on the national stage. Rosa Parks' protest earned her the title the mother of the civil rights movement. Last month, Governor Baker signed into law a bill mandating a special recognition of Rosa Parks on all MBTA buses. And it all came to be because of a local woman's persistence. Joining me in the studio now... Natalie Ornell, who conceived the idea of the tribute. She is currently in a graduate teacher preparation program at Lesley University. Hello, Natalie. Hello. Tanisha Sullivan, president of the NAACP Boston branch. Welcome, Tanisha. Thank you, Callie. And State Representative Russell Holmes of the 6th Suffolk District. He is the former chair and a current member of the Massachusetts Black and Latino Legislative Caucus. Welcome, Representative Holmes. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have all of you. Um, Before we talk about, Natalie, what you did and the recognition, um, I find that people really don't know the history um, we you know, they sort of vaguely know Rosa Parks sat down, then something happened. So I thought it would be good to hear Rosa Parks' voice. Um, and this is Rosa Parks in an interview uh, from Eyes on the Prize, uh, American Civil Rights Years. When the policeman approached me, one of them spoke and asked me if the driver had, had, uh, had asked me to stand. I said, yes. He said, why don't you stand up? I said, I don't think I should have to stand up. And I asked him, I said, why do you push us around? He said, I do not know, but the law is a law and you're under arrest. Again, it's an interview from Eyes on the Prize. I actually conducted that interview with with Rosa Parks for the documentary series. So it was supposed to be a one-day boycott. Yeah. And Martin Luther King had arrived in uh, Montgomery. He was 26 years old. Nobody knew him at all. But the fervor, the excitement, um, the anger, really, of the people about how Mrs. Parks had been treated led this to become something more than a one-day boycott. But here is the voice of one of the boycotters right at the beginning, trying to see if this thing is really going to take off. This is Francis Belser, one of the original Montgomery bus boycotters. And I got up to see it, and several buses passed. I was late for work because I was trying to see how many buses was empty, and they were totally empty. And so, Natalie, you know that uh, what makes the Montgomery bus boycott stand out, of course, is that it went on for more than a year um, and that um, all the African-American riders stayed off the buses, uh, enforcing finally some local action and after the Supreme Court declared that the segregated bus uh, system was unconstitutional. So here we are today. Fast forward. Uh, Rosa Parks has been honored many times, uh, including with a, a statue in the Capitol Rotunda. And uh, you were inspired by her and her activism. Tell me why. Sure. So this all started when I went to Miami over a year ago and I got on a bus, a public bus in Miami. And I looked up on the window and it said, seat dedicated to Rosa Parks. And that was a really powerful moment for me because I had never seen a dedication like that on a public bus. And I thought it would be really incredible to try to do that in Boston, which is a city that has so many ongoing issues with segregation, racism, and obviously the issues on our public transportation system regarding equity. Additionally, Rosa Parks uh, did so much more than a lot of people know. Her entire life, she was an activist. And with the Me Too movement going on as well, everything she did um, for Reese Taylor and for women in, in general to fight for justice is so um, worthy of being recognized today. So I'm really grateful for everybody who helped with this initiative. So many people came together. Um, even Fred Gray, her lawyer and Dr. King's lawyer, 
really worked hard to make this a reality. Not only that she would be recognized um, as the bill Senator Timothy file was initially to recognize her every Black History Month, but to recognize her permanently. And I think that is so important in and of itself, because a lot of times in school, especially kids see that Rosa Parks is recognized during Black History Month, but then it's March, April, May, June, mm-hmm. July, and she's she's no longer in the curriculum. It's back to waiting for her to be recognized again in February. So I'm really excited that every single day people in Boston will see her name on the bus. And the other thing is that when I was going to school, we never even learned about the Boston busing crisis, which mm-hmm. is... I think really a, a scary thing that that's been sort of censored from our curriculum. And I saw a story in the Globe that it wasn't even incorporated in our curriculum until 2015 in the city schools. So there's a lot of reasons why I think this is really important for Boston. That's my guest, Natalie Ornell. She was the driving force behind getting a, a permanent recognition for Rosa Parks on the MBTA buses. It's a red decal, which I saw the other night and got so excited <laughs> because I hadn't seen it, you know, for real. I'm, bo- I'm boarding the bus and I said, oh, my God, there it is. And it's very prominent, Tanisha. And it's exciting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, I think there are, there are two messages that come out of this particular um, um, recognition. One, and I, I don't want it to get lost, is about the power of an individual to effectuate change. You know, it cannot be underestimated the the level of work that was required um, and commitment that was required on the part of Natalie to see this to really this outcome. Um, and I hope that that serves as a catalyst for other people to know that if they see something that they want to change or if they see something that they want to kind of illuminate um, in our communities, that they can do that. Um, and certainly want to thank the representatives, um, our state legislators who kind of carried this forward, certainly um, Rep. Holmes, who's here today, um, as well as Senator um, Timothy for sponsoring the legislation. The other piece is that, you know, why while this particular recognition to Rosa Parks is on a bus, and certainly we know her history with um, the Montgomery bus boycotts, I think particularly in the city of Boston, what's powerful about these decals is that it's a reminder to us of the vast inequity and inequality that one can see as you're riding on one bus mm-hmm. route or another. Mm-hmm. I think it's reflective of the work that we still have to do. Um, and certainly we know that Rosa Parks in the civil rights movement, the Montgomery bus boycott was about economic equality, you know, mm-hmm. at its at its core. And so when we think about the impact of inequality across this city, whether we're talking about access to affordable housing um, and gentrification in many of our neighborhoods, access to resources for small and emerging businesses in many of our neighborhoods, poor neighborhoods, as well as black and Latino neighborhoods. And I do like to separate the two because they're not the same. Mm-hmm. I do think that this speaks to what is possible going forward, what the individual action of Mm -hmm. of Natalie in this instance can do or lead to as it relates to our collective action going forward. That's my guest, Boston President of the NAACP, Tanisha Sullivan. Uh, So uh, Representative Holmes, Russell Holmes, this was not easy. You know, I think we can all agree that if this came forward, nobody was saying don't do it. But actually having it go from Natalie's idea through all of the, the twists and turns of the legislature to actually becoming a law is quite 
something else. So um, how did all of the organizations, including the Massachusetts Black and Latino Legislative Caucus, play a part in this? So what I thought was great was the fact that it got so far even without us having to push it. So what I mean by that is when you think of Natalie's effort, typically what happens is you have a very good idea like this. It gets to bills in third reading. And you get there, and that's pretty much where things go to die. And you really normally need a, a lobbyist or some friends of a friend to really work it through the political arm of all the things that happen in state government. But uh, Natalie uh, did it all without it. And so when I got the email initially from, from Natalie, I was like, well, who wouldn't do this? But she was still running into quite a bit of problems. And my big push when it got very close to the end was to just email directly to the speaker, to Mariano, and to Ted to say, essentially, and I think I included Natalie on the email, to basically uh, demand that at that point, um, if this doesn't pass, rest assured, Holmes will be a very loud person (laughs) because um, it really doesn't make any sense. And one of the issues was, of course, what Natalie was talking about, about whether or not it should be recognized just in February or not. And so what was great is the, the logic of what makes sense it takes a lot of effort to put the decals off and put them back on. Mm. And so it just made sense that if you're going to do it, then it made sense to make it year long. And so the evaluation of what's the cost and things of that nature uh, was one of the things that, of course, let a lot of bills die. But from my perspective, it didn't matter what it cost. I, I know I've gotten a very nasty email about the fact that this didn't happen in Massachusetts. And why on earth do we have these on our buses in Massachusetts? And it took everything in me, Callie, to not respond because the email went to the whole building from a gentleman that said, this is is Alabama history. And I just wanted to really scream and as loud as I could, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice anywhere. You know, you could just go through everything in me. I wanted to also just really draft back an email to just say, grew up in Mississippi and my parents, one in Boston, one in Mississippi, just imagine that if I wanted to leave on a bus and go from Boston to Alabama, I would need to get to the back of the bus Mm -hmm. at some point, Mm -hmm. Virginia, somewhere in that area, and Mm -hmm. what the Freedom Riders went through. So um, I think the biggest point of this was that you had Fred Gray being recognized, which is also just a legend. Yes, Martin Luther King uh, and Rosa Parks attorney. And Mm -hmm. so once you see an email, quite Mm -hmm. frankly, that I forward to those two, and and we all advocated for that's from Fred Gray himself around about Rosa Parks. That's right. Mm-hmm. How hard is this of a decision? And so I'm happy to see that we were able to get it done. I um, want to just note that Representative Ted Spilotis yes. um, was the one that added an amendment to make this a permanent sure. uh, decal. So yes. that and uh, it was uh, a Walter Timothy who you know sponsored it on behalf of Natalie. Who Can asked I also him to do add that, that mm-hmm. Ted is doing cartwheels. Because Mr. Gray sent him an autographed book. (laughs) And so when we were at the Black History uh, program the caucus had on Monday, Ted is there showing everyone the book. Look at what Fred Gray sent me. And um, he sent him a book to say, to thank him for the effort as well. Okay, he filed that amendment right after Fred Gray talked to him on the phone. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so now we have a decal to recognize and honor Mrs. Parks. But you know, it's important that people see the stickers and know the history. Are there any efforts or what can happen to keep the discussion going, both about her history and then to Tanisha's point about understanding what it represents that she's her face is on this bus? Because we're talking about inequities that need to be remedied. Natalie? I think that 
there should be education around the decal and also around Boston's own busing history. Like I said, it's been erased for so many generations. I think this is an opportunity to discuss all the issues going on in Boston with our schools, with the T, in our workplace. I think it can keep the discussion can keep going. It's never going away as long as the buses keep Going around Boston, those decals are going to be there. People are going to see Rosa Parks' name every single day. They get on the bus in all neighborhoods. So I think that's so important that every community is seeing her name there and that everybody's learning about her. You know, when I was working on this bill, I tried to meet with MassDOT, but I was never able to get a meeting. And one of the things that I, I heard from them is that, you know, people may not know who she is. And, and for me, that was, well, if somebody doesn't know who she is, that's an opportunity to learn. Okay. So I hope that the education and conversations can keep happening around this and that, you know, some people are reacting and saying, well, you put these stickers up, MBTA. What about doing more practical solutions for mm -hmm. all the problems we're having? Mm -hmm. And I hope that people will be inspired to keep working on those issues and get bills filed and go through the entire process, which is really hard. It feels like you're up against a brick wall a lot yeah. of the time. You have to be really patient and keep going for a really long time to make change. And there's so many people working on those issues right now. I'm just an everyday person, and I didn't think I could do this. I took a legislative advocacy class before this, and I would have never done that without the class. And I think everyday people can get bills filed to make changes on the MBTA. In the spirit of Rosa Parks, who believed in freedom and justice, who, who didn't let obstacles get in her way. So there's so many obstacles right now to realizing equity on the T. But if more people take action together, then we can keep working towards improving the situation. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Natalie Ornell, you just heard her, NAACP Boston President Tanisha Sullivan, and Massachusetts State Representative Russell Holmes, and we're discussing a new law that requires all MBTA buses to display a sticker honoring Rosa Parks and her contributions to the civil rights movement. So this, to me, is a huge civic engagement initiative, and uh, inspiration, all of that stuff, but I don't want to leave uh, some of the concerns that you raised, Tanisha, because Nestor Ramos did a editorial in which she, not bit actually, in which she talked about some of the inequities um, on the bus system and that he doesn't want that to get lost, he said, because if she were, if Parks were riding the buses today, she would see the inequity that's disturbingly similar, he writes, to the segregation her 1955 protest was perfectly calibrated to confront. Mm -hmm. How do you respond to that? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Look, I, I think that, you know, there's no better time for us to use certainly the decal as a reminder of where we have come from, um, but also of the work that lies ahead. We are, you know, looking at, and, and Rep. Holmes can certainly speak to this, you know, over the next probably 12 months, an intensive debate in the Commonwealth around transportation and infrastructure. Mm -hmm. This is the perfect opportunity for us to be reminded of the actual causes that for which Rosa Parks was sitting, right? Mm -hmm. um, why she refused to move and what the, you know, what was the launch of the civil rights movement. And so, you know, for our part, I think that it's particularly important in the context of our transportation and infrastructure conversations that we are mindful of the intersections with, again, kind of affordable housing, thinking about um, the impact of, you know, lack of reliable service in lower income neighborhoods mm -hmm. and what that means for people who need to get to and from work. Thinking about, again, kind of um, the impact on commercial real estate and how improvements to the T system may impact, you know, I think 
think automatically think about Rep Homes at Mattapan Square. Mm-hmm. You know, some of these long-standing businesses that could mm-hmm. be adversely impacted by improvements to the T system if we're not intentional about putting in protections for small and growing businesses. So I think that this is a perfect opportunity for again us to be reminded of the work that lies ahead and in the context of transportation, making sure that we're intentional about not just focusing on, you know, the buses and and the trains, but also thinking about all of those issues that connect racial justice yeah. issues that connect to um, to improvements. And Representative Holmes, we are now at a point where there is a major fundraising effort going on to honor uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. So it's interesting, an interesting moment of paying sure. attention to and honoring these civil rights icons. Of course, the Kings had also a very strong connection to Boston. How, where do you put all this then in the spectrum of how we should be you know, both honoring the history, mm-hmm. but also being reminded of what the work is today. Sure. I, I mm-hmm. would say first, uh, I'm going to put another amendment in this year to try to get another half a million dollars for the King Monument. So please support me on that effort because of the fact that we didn't get it in last year in, in the budget. But I also want to just also address where do we have the conversation. Natalie had recommended that we have some of the children do some of the decals. Like, so I, I strongly was supportive of let's do a decal for Rosa Parks initially. And then if you want to have it so that some of the children would in the city would have this conversation in our educational program and teach everyone, white, black, Hispanic, whatever it may be, around the story of Rosa Parks, I think that would be important and help even the folks who are on the T, the young folks, uh, get into the conversation. And then when it comes to just the disparities that happen, uh, when Tanisha was mentioning about Mattapan Square, we're about to open a brand new commuter rail station in Mattapan. And my concern is just the basics of can I get on to the ride at, in Mattapan and transfer easily at South Station? I shouldn't have to have some inconvenience moving from that line to another line and making sure that the basics that we're doing are considered. Like we're thinking about a new automated fare collection tool that will have it so that no one puts change in on, on the bus. Well, what does that do for people who are low income who come in and just put change in? They're trying to slow or speed up the ride because of the fact that obviously when people are adding money to their cards. So in every change we're making, I'm trying to just make sure equity is a part of the lens and the conversation around any disparity, whether that be bus, train, commuter rail, or whatever it may be. Can I jump in on the MLK question, um, Callie? I I do want to, because I think it's important, Um, you know, certainly the the tribute to um, Dr. King and Coretta Scott King is very important. But at the same time, I do think it's critically important that we're not solely focused on the monument on Mm. Boston Mm. Common, but also focused on the other initiatives that surround this monument, i.e. the equity center, the racial justice center that is being proposed in Roxbury. My concern is that we'll get so focused on the symbol on Boston Common and we'll forget about the work that was um, initially um, part of this project in Roxbury. Because at the end of the day, right, we can have these these symbols, right? But if we're really not focused on on addressing the work that these folks fought, bled, and died for, then it's just another bronze statue. Um, So I do hope that as the King um, Monument work moves forward, that we will 
make sure that, again, we're not only focused on Boston Common and having Mm -hmm. a beautiful monument there, but we'll also be focused on the work that needs to happen in Roxbury, because that's really where the heart and soul of Coretta Scott King and Dr. King were. And let me just say that were Rosa Parks alive, she died at age 92, Mm -hmm. she, as Natalie has pointed out, would still be very, she'd probably be actively uh, working on these issues because Mm -hmm. she worked literally up Mm -hmm. until the day she died on a variety of social justice issues, and that should never be forgotten. I highly recommend a book by uh, Jean Theo Harris called The Rebellious Life of Rosa Parks, which really outlines her career as as an activist, and people think of her kind of as a quiet a seamstress, and she was not that. Uh, in fact, uh, Natalie, she she went to Highlander to learn the kind of uh, organizing skills that you learned in your legislative advocacy class. So you two are bonded on many levels um, across the decades. I wanted to uh, end, Natalie, with um, asking you how you felt when you saw the decal on the bus. Sure. So I was actually on an MBTA bus when I got the call that the the bill passed, and it was a great moment. And then seeing it on the bus, it was great. Um, it was actually on multiple places in the bus, which surprised me. So it was on the outside on the window and also behind the driver on the wall. So when I had been working on it, I thought it would be on the passenger window where she sat. Um, but they put on two different places, which is interesting because when people wait to board the bus, they can see it on the window. So... That's where I saw it when I was waiting to board the bus. Well, thank you for your effort. It's always interesting to meet people who um, have a commitment, have a plan, and push through, and then seek the support that they need and make it happen. You're sort of the living embodiment of civic engagement. I'm so grateful. (laughs) This is a huge coalition, and I think that if you want to get a bill passed, you have to keep bringing more and more people in to to pressure everyone and to get get it done. So I'm just really grateful to Senator Timothy, to the NBLC, to the NAACP, to the Boston City Council, Cambridge City Councils, everybody, to the Rosa and Raymond Parks Institute for Self-Development, Fred Gray, everybody who helps. All right. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) And thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Natalie Rennell spearheaded the idea for honoring Rosa Parks on MBTA buses. She is currently studying teaching at Lesley University. Tanisha Sullivan is the president of the NAACP Boston branch, and Russell Holmes is the representative from Suffolk District 6 and a member of the Massachusetts Black and Latino Legislative Caucus. We're going to leave you with Sister Rosa by the Neville Brothers. Thank you, Miss Rosa. You are the spark that started our freedom movement. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash underthereradarwgbh. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Thank you, Sister Rosa Parks.